Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Rim, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. And I wanted to give a particular shout out to our international listeners today. We have podcast followers in 50 countries around the world, which is just incredible. And just to give you a few examples, there are people listening in Israel, in the Czech Republic, in Cambodia and in Zambia. So it's really great that we're reaching so many different places. Thank you for joining us today, wherever you are. Our guest today is British show jumping legend Jeff Billington, who shares his favourite memories from his incredible career. Every time you ride on a British team, it's a massive honour, you know, like playing football for your country, pulling the shirt on, jumping for your country is everything. I'm also joined by two of our news team to talk about the latest COVID updates, road safety and women in the racing world. Finally, vet Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine will talk about what happens when a horse ties up. If you've missed a day because you didn't manage to get up to the yard, you pull your horse out and it's really stiff. The chances are it's down to the fact that they weren't exercised. So that's enough from me. Slip on your bridle and let's get going. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, show jumping editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm delighted that this week's guest is one of the country's most popular and successful show jumpers, the one and only Jeff Billington. Jeff, welcome and thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. Thank you, Jen. It's nice to be here. I'd be lying if I said I'd got a lot more to do. <laughs> Very quiet here. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, Jeff, these are strange times we're living in. Everyone in England is back in lockdown again. How have you been spending your time? Is it business as usual or are you twiddling your thumbs, taking up any unusual hobbies this year? Well, this year, talking about the full year, it's it's been in different bits. I was busy to start with and then we got locked down. And then I've been busy doing a lot of clinics since we got started up again and now we're closed down again. Uh, yeah, it's one of those years, isn't it? Hard to make any plans at all. What's your? Tell us about your setup at home. How many horses have you got, and what's the sort of typical day? Are you busy teaching and things. We've got the ones in that, that have been in the field all summer. So we've got uh, the old brood mare in. We've got a couple of yearlings, a couple of two-year-olds, three three-year-olds. My wife Sarah's been breaking the three-year-olds, and I've been shouting orders. <laughs> keeping you busy and your son Alfie he's four is that right I guess he's keeping you busy does he have a pony yet is he set to follow in the family footsteps <laughs> I don't know about that he's, he's keen to ride he asks he asks to ride oh brilliant we've got a really good pony uh we've got Matthew Broom's pony that he had for his little girl and it's brilliant you know it really it's a proper first pony oh fantastic um, and Jeff, now you're appearing in Horse and Hound this week as part of our Life Lesson series, and we took you on a bit of a trip down memory lane, looking back on a fantastic career in which you've won the Hickstead Derby, jumped at two Olympics, won championship medals and countless Grand Prix. Are you able to pick out some of your proudest achievements from over the years? You know, it, it, start, it probably started off, it was a massive honour to, to go on my first British team in 1974, Every every time you ride on a British team, it's a massive honour, you know, like playing football for your country, mm -hmm. pulling the shirt on. So that's always been a big thing in my heart. Jumping for your country is everything. You did it so many times. It was over 50 Nations Cup appearances, I think, and you jumped at the Olympics. I mean, it's it's such an honour, as you say. Yeah, I, I jumped on teams with, with great people. I jumped with my idols. Harvey Smith and David Broom, my best friends, John, Michael, Nick, Robert, Smith, 
Yeah, we had some great times. But going back to when you said different achievements, I won the Fox Hunter final in 1986, which was a big thing to do. Everybody wants to win the Fox Hunter final. And then, yeah, the Olympic Games is the pinnacle. You know, when you get picked for the Olympic Games, you, that it doesn't get any better than that. Along the way, winning medals at European and World Championships, Hickstead Derby. One big great thing was my son James. They won the team gold medal at the Junior European Championships in Villamora. That was a massive achievement. Um, and one of the things you revealed in your life lesson in this week's magazine was that you always keep a checklist for when you go to shows. And that's a lesson that John Whitaker really needs to learn. Tell us the great story about his forgotten boots in Atlanta. <laughs> John's so laid back, it's unbelievable. <laughs> if we'd travelled to to shows on a weekend, I'd have a big suitcase and a brief briefcase, and John would just have a plastic bag with one pair of socks, one pair of joppers. <laughs> he'd probably wear the same shirt for three days. We got, we got to Atlanta, and uh, he just wandered up. He said, uh, have you got any spare boots? I said, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've got some new ones that, I brought, that I'm going to break in. He said, oh, that's good, because I forgot my boots. <laughs> I didn't have to break the boots in. John John wore them every day and broke the boots in for me at the Olympic Games. I cannot believe he went to an Olympic Games and forgot his boots. That's just uh, typical John. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, but it, it wouldn't be a big thing, you know. If you if you said to him now, uh, is there anything that you've forgotten when when you were going to Olympic Games? He wouldn't he wouldn't remember. Um, and you and John, you've been friends and rivals, I guess, since you were kids. Um, sort of tell me about those very early years when you were on batting about on ponies together. We met when we were 12 or 13. And there was, a, I lived in Lancashire, John lived in Yorkshire. And there was a, a show, a riding club show in between on the moors, a place called Todmorden, right on the border of Lancashire, Yorkshire. And there was this little snotty-nosed kid that used to come out and never stop jumping clear around. His hair was in his eyes. <laughs> he had jumpers that didn't get washed from the beginning of the season to the end. <laughs> but the 12-2 and the 13-2 competitions always got am amalgamated together. It, it was a handicap. And you didn't go against the clock. If you jumped three clear rounds, you were equal first. And it finished up. A lot of the time it was me and him with a couple of ponies each all jumping three clear rounds. Oh, fantastic. And did you know then that he was going to go on to greatness as well? And did you spot something in him? Or uh, was he just another kid out there to rival against? You don't even think about that then. You know, he was, he was a shy, young, 13-year-old boy. Very, very determined. Didn't like getting, getting beaten. That's, uh, that's been the same all through life. He's very quiet, but he's got, he's got this determination that people don't know about. It's unreal. It's so stubborn, he will not give in to anything. Um, and you're, you said your heroes back then were sort of David Broom and Harvey Smith. What did you sort of admire in them? What did you, did you follow them as riders? What influence did they have on you? Watching show jumping, probably when I was nine years old on television, the ones always in the jump off were Harvey Smith on Harvester and O'Malley, David Broom on Mr Softy and they were the ones that were always there, so they, they stuck out in my mind. And it's funny how I was so obsessed. My dad, I used to get my dad to drive over to Yorkshire and drive past the bottom of Harvey's Drive. <gasps> no, nobody knows this, but we'd just drive and say, there's his farm up there on the hill. <laughs> and then, we, and then wow. we'd drive home back to Accrington. 
Amazing. And then, of course, you, you ended up sort of competing against your idols, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, against them, jumping on teams with them, becoming good friends. Yeah, it's funny how life goes round. And, of course, you couldn't have done any of this without the horses. You've enjoyed some great partnerships over the years. Are there any horses that you can pick out as your favourites? I'm guessing It's Otto comes in at number one, does he? Oh, 100%. But I did have very, I had very good horses along the way, you know, before Otto. But I just never had that one horse that would I would dream about going to Olympic Games or European Championships. Uh, but I had, I had some really good horses. A horse that won the Fox Hunter final and he won the Grade C in the same year. A horse called Eddisford Bridge. That was in 1986 and I finished up. He was my own. I finished up selling him. And that's when I had my first uh, big lorry built. So, you know, he, he did his job. <laughs> yes. Paid his way. Yeah, uh, I had a very good horse off Sally Mapleson called Rhapsody. Yeah. Sally Mapleson was a top competitor. She rode on British teams and she produced two young horses, Rhapsody and Airborne. When they were nine, she decided to give up, so she sent them both to Nick Skelton. Well, Nick really got on with Airborne, but he didn't like Rhapsody and Rhapsody didn't like him. So Sally rang me crying. She said, Nick says he's never going to ride Rhapsody again. Do you want to have a go with him? I said, yeah, I'd love to. And uh, basically, I just let him go his own way. And he was a very, very good horse for, for a lot of years. Uh, yeah, I've got a lot of horses stick out in my mind. And it's Otto. I mean, he came to you as a novice, did he? Did you always spot he was going to be as great as he was? Or he was a bit quirky along the way, was he? Yeah, you can never, you can never tell how good, how good they are till they're doing it. When I had Otto, I'd have loads of people, probably mostly Dutchmen, ringing me up saying, I've got another It's Otto. And I, my answer to that would be, you haven't. <laughs> Every step that you go up the ladder, you know, you run into the different problems. And it takes a lot, a lot and lots of mileage to, to make a top horse. Uh, thousands and thousands of rounds. So you can hope you've got a superstar, but uh, until they're doing it, you don't know. And what did you love most about riding it, Soto? Did it, was it just that feeling of confidence and best results? We had a partnership, I think. He knew me and I knew him. I think it fitted like a hand in a glove. He didn't win that many classes in his life. He was second a lot, a lot of times in the big classes. But he used to go so high over the fences, he'd, he'd waste a second or two seconds in, in the air, which I didn't complain about. What a horse he was. Um, and which events did you most enjoy competing at over the years? You've mentioned Spruce Meadows, but was there always a show that went in your diary for the year ahead? The two in England are the best, Hickstead. I had some fantastic times at, at Hickstead. Uh, an indoors Olympia. You can't beat Olympia. Just before Christmas, all the fun. I, I don't know whether it's just as much fun now, you know, with... Health and safety coming into everything. We used to have great fun in the fancy dress. Uh, Medina was a, another good show. That was run by Pavarotti. And we, we used to go and sit with Pavarotti after we'd jumped. And he, he loved my horse, Otto. He used to he'd sit in the stands. And when I came in the ring, you'd salute him. And Pavarotti would wave a white handkerchief, at, not at me, at the horse. And then he'd come around the stables, patting him after and feeding him tidbits. That's good memories. Amazing. You don't see that happening these days. It's, uh, I mean, you must have seen the sport change a lot over the years. Are there things that you miss? What's changed for the better? Anything you'd like to see improve? I don't know about improve. That's the way, that's the, way the world's gone. 
everything's all health and safety and uh, you know we used to jump at, at small shows where there was it was roped off with one with a little bit of rope round the edge and the and the crowd would be six deep now i don't think that would happen anymore in those days you could go out if you found a good horse first of all the, the horse wouldn't be for sale you were lucky you were lucky to find a good horse graham fletcher was sort of after harvey and david graham fletcher was one of my idols he'd be five or six years older than me fletch and he had a string of six grand prix horses that he'd made himself he never he never ever sold them but he made a lot of money in prize money and i remember fletch buying another farm with with his prize money one year wow but nowadays i think it's more difficult for a young kid they've all got to be more business minded you couldn't go out and earn a living off prize money like we did in those days yeah you can if you're going around the, if you're scott brash or ben mayor of course you can but the normal kid growing up it's too everything's too expensive you know all, all the regulations on the wagons and things like that you've got to have this this test and that test and i can remember i can remember john whitaker when he was 14 years old he qualified for the fox to junior fox to final at hickstead and they set off three days before to make sure they got there and they broke down that many times they got there half an hour before the class three days later <laughs> times have definitely changed in that respect um you're still very much involved in show jumping what gives you the most satisfaction these days commentating we love your commentary um teaching you still love riding as much as ever these days yeah i do especially when if you've got a nice horse I've got a really nice six-year-old called Just Special, which I think he is special. I won't keep him. He'll, he'll get sold next year or the year after uh, because that's how, the, that's how the world goes now. You know, yeah, we've got to keep selling them to make money to keep going. One of my jobs now is to produce horses to a good level and then hopefully sell them to some rich daddy. Oh. Also, I do, a lot of, I do a lot of teaching clinics up and down the country at grassroots level, not at not coaching up and coming superstars. Uh, just people that want to the old sixty three year old lady on her cob that doesn't want to jump any bigger than a snake's belly. But if she comes along and enjoys it and has a bit of fun, goes home happy, then I'm then I'm happy. Absolutely. Um, and finally, Jeff, uh, Christmas is fast approaching, I hate to say it, but um, it's going to be very different this year without Liverpool and Olympia. But how is the Billington family planning to spend Christmas this year? Are you going to be in the kitchen rustling up the turkey with all the trimmings? I, I, I do like cooking. You know, me and Sarah take it in turn. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be cooking cooking a lot. Uh, it's good just watching Alfie at, at a great age, four and a half. Seems to know everything. <laughs> uh, Has he given you his Christmas list yet? Uh, I haven't got it yet. It changes every day. <laughs> He's just starting to be able to. He can write his name now, so I'm sure in a month's time he'll be he'll be handing me a list. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> oh, we'll look forward to it, Jeff. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you once again for coming on the Horse and Hound podcast, and we look forward to seeing you out and about very soon. I hope. Thanks, Jan. Stay safe, everybody. I'm joined today by our news editor, Eleanor Jones. Hello, Eleanor. Morning. And our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Hello, Lucy. Hello. And guys, what have you been up to? What's going on with you? 
club had a few days off which is very nice using up holiday uh, that had to be had and obviously couldn't do any shows or anything but i've actually managed to find uh, a forest 15 minutes away in the lorry and it's just brilliant great hacking and great riding and all off-road and it was like how did i not know <laughs> how near that was so no oh, it's fab that sounds lovely what about you lucy just hacking as well um but from home it's been it's been lovely i think last week i was saying that i was trying to dodge the rain and it's been it's been lovely this week actually so again nothing too exciting just in, enjoying riding while while we can Hmm, that's nice to hear. Well, I have not been doing anything very horsey, but we spent last weekend starting to paint our flat. So that is a good job to get done during lockdown. And talking of lockdown, our first story today, as so often, is COVID-19. We had some news yesterday on what's going to happen when the lockdown ends in England next week. Lucy, what are the big themes coming out of that for riders? So I think the biggest thing probably is that everyone's quite excited about is the return of outdoor grassroots sport uh, across the tiers now we're expected to find out more more information about the tiers situation on thursday if you're listening to this so hopefully today we'll have a little bit more info um but yeah the main thing was outdoor sport that you can um once lockdown ends you can leave home for any reason and that you can meet others in outdoor spaces subject to the rule of six and of course there's lots of other you know sort of restrictions and limits and things surrounding that and not going to go into all of those in detail now but that's those are the main things which I think I'm certainly not just speaking for myself and saying it was very very welcome to hear that when that was announced in um in the House of Commons on Monday. And there was some exciting news about spectators too. And this was a total surprise for me. I don't know whether it was for you, Lucy, but it wasn't something I was expecting. But what did they say about spectators and what's been the reaction? Yeah, absolutely. And this surprised me too. And it was exciting that it wasn't just a line saying we're getting spectators back but that that was then followed up with some with some figures and percentages and it's been it's been broadly welcomed fairly obviously um and the numbers we know are going to depend on the tier and whether the event is indoors or outdoors and also there's going to be work going on with local authorities as well to make sure all those things are catered for but we know that at tier one it'll be 50% 50% capacity or 4,000 outdoors or 1,000 indoors, whichever is lower. And at tier two, these are going to be 50% capacity or 2,000 outdoors and 1,000 indoors, again, whichever is lower. And no spectators will be there at tier three. But I mean, overall, this is this is really exciting news. As, as you said, this isn't something that I could, I thought was going to be announced certainly this side of Christmas. So yeah, very welcome news. Mm, really good to hear. And finally, it looks like racing is in line for some funding from a recent government package. Yes, we heard that as well. That came a couple of days earlier. So on 19th of November, it was announced that racing had been provisionally allocated a £40 million loan as part of the £300 million sport winter survival package. And that's to protect the immediate future of major spectator sports in England. As we know, the pilot schemes to return crowds that sort of were going ahead earlier this year, those were postponed. So that's to sort of to help out those. And again, there's some more details due to come on those and how it, that money is going to be spent and how it's going to be applied for and also around how how the sport shares that responsibility of the loan so it's not just falling on the shoulders of, of the race courses. But yeah, still exciting news. Hmm. Well, there's lots of positives there and things that we all, all look forward to. We all need things to look forward to at the moment. We'll 
want to be able to do with more with our horses and have more reports back in Horse and Hound magazine too. So thank you for that, Lucy. Eleanor, coming over to you now, you've been working on a story about road safety. It's a topic which always resonates with our readers and our listeners. We often get a lot of letters about it to the magazine when we write about it. Tell us, the British Horse Society has released some statistics recently which have led to this story, is that right? Yeah, so it's the statistics they release every year, um, usually in the spring, but these ones have been delayed because of the pandemic and they then release them to coincide with Road Safety Week, which was last week. Um, And sadly, they're up again, up by 23% to 1,037. But what uh, BHS Safety Director Alan Hiscox thinks and has said before is they have good reason to believe that this is only 10% of the total number of incidents, um, but only 10% are reported to the BHS's accident website. So they're saying uh, it could be more like 10,000. And the one key message is to anyone involved in any sort of incident, whether it's an actual one or a near miss or anything that made you not feel safe, do report it to the BHS because then it gives them more power when they're lobbying government to say this is a true picture of what's happening on the road. And when you say incidents, when I first read this story, I was thinking of an incident being a crash. But actually, a lot of these incidents are to do with road rage and abuse, aren't they? So, yeah, of of the number of people who reported incidents, 43% of them had been subject to road rage or verbal abuse from drivers, which is shocking, but not surprising, I don't think. And so the overall message here is if you are involved in an incident on the road with a horse, you should report it to the BHS to help gather this information. How should people do that, Eleanor? Where do they go to make that report? Um, So the website is horseincidents.org.uk. And yeah, please do report uh, any incidents. And like I say, it doesn't have to be what you might think of as an accident, any near miss or anything that made you not feel safe. And that will help give the BHS power to, to lobby for, uh, for for the rights of horses on the road and, and for them to be better protected. Thank you, Eleanor. Lucy, coming back to you, I was really interested in the story that you've written this week about women in racing. What's this all about? This I was really interested to write this one as well, actually, Pippa. I, was, I went to the launch of this report back in November last year, where they had a, a discussion. It was at Chatham House Rules, so people were talking quite freely about the challenges faced by working mothers in the racing industry and not just stable staff, not just, you know, the horseman side, but across the industry. And this is the report that that has now come out of that. It's been published and it's thrown up some really, really interesting practices and some findings, um, not all particularly positive, um, but it's sort of looking at practicalities of working, um, working practices, maternity leave, managing perceptions, work-life balance, what the barriers are. And it's not only come up with what those barriers are, but also a quite a comprehensive list of recommendations of how to, how to improve things. So some of the key findings are that there's attitudinal and structural barriers, which are creating a drain on talent and resources now that's important for lots of reasons um not least that being a woman or being being a mother having children shouldn't be a barrier to having a career but also we do know that racing is facing a stable staffing crisis the reports found that people are leaving before they would perhaps otherwise leave the industry and so looking at why and if there's things that the whole industry can do to perhaps make 
that work-life balance easier to achieve for people and so people aren't leaving you know people that are trained people that are passionate about the sport people that have got experience if there's ways that you can help keep them in the industry then hopefully that will not just benefit individuals but also the the industry as a whole so it was a really interesting one actually to get my teeth into this week and sort of looking at specifics and changes what sort of things might change that would help women in this industry I mean the big one that came out was childcare um, across the recommendations. I not only looked at the the report itself, but I spoke to quite a few people working in the industry uh, to find out their own experiences and what they found. And across that, across the report, across the interviews that I did with them was was childcare as a real, it was sort of the crux of, of, of the point. So running through the recommendations is better access to affordable childcare, whether that's formal or informal ways to do that ways to engage with people working in the sort of the big racing hubs of places like Newmarket looking at nursery opening times things like that but also across the sport in the rest of the country as well and trying to trying to find ways to to make that achievable because as several people said to me that you know we try worked with trial and error and I could go back to work but all of my wage was going on childcare effectively and again these aren't completely isolated challenges to racing as Tallulah, Tallulah Lewis, the chair of women in racing said to me, you know, this, these are findings that you could find in a lot of industries if, if you started to look at them, but looking at how people can have better access to more information about what supports out there, both in racing or equestrian world and outside the equestrian world. And again, that's for employees and employers and self-employed, the suggestions of having perhaps a hotline and mum's net for racing, and also of sharing the really positive stories of role models who are making it work. And again, this is very individual. This is very personal to each person's situation and what they want to do and what balance is right for them but sharing those examples of people that have made it work businesses that are making it work so that people can see that it is that it is possible and um and that help is out there for for all sides really so Mm, there were some positives in the report weren't there that there are some sort of good examples of best practice absolutely and it'd be quite easy to look at the report and think that the whole situation is isn't great but but if you just took at you know the top line at face value but as they go into rightly in there as well and in the interviews that I did with people people were saying that there are pockets of good practice through the industry and it those need to be really celebrated and shown how those are working well I spoke to someone who has working at a yard for example where they have the option of an early afternoon shift so whereas in racing you have you tend to start very early and have a chunk of a break across lunchtime they were having the option of starting early but working through and finishing in time for the school run which meant that they could pick up their kids from school and things like that and you know perhaps allowing them to have some time off for a couple of hours understanding if they want to go and watch school play or a sports match and making up those hours elsewhere so that degree of flexibility and interestingly covid was cited in the report as well and sort of the way that employers and businesses and people are perhaps embracing enforced change because of because of the COVID rules that have come in and enforcing flexibility that perhaps has got a bit of a legacy as well to it so so yeah it definitely not all bad I spoke to people who were you know couldn't say enough positive things about their employers and their experiences and the other thing that really came out of it was people were saying this isn't a sob story you know we're not wanting sympathy we're just it, there are challenges here there are barriers and if there's ways of of helping us with those or helping the industry with them then you know, hopefully every, everyone can benefit from that. 
Mm, really interesting, Lucy, and it's something that not not necessarily in racing, but as you say, that's a challenge that's there in a lot of industries and lines of work for women. I uh, I don't have any kids, but I'm at an age where most of my friends do, and um, spend a lot of time talking about you know childcare and and whether you can make it financially stack up, and you know people working working different hours and and, and what hours nurseries are open and so on to, to make that work. And racing has some quite individual needs, as you say, in terms of the hours that that the horses require require staff as well as children requiring their parents so exactly yeah really interesting one thank you very much lucy and thank you to eleanor for joining us today too so it's over to vet ricky far now who's going to talk us through tying up so you've had your horse in all weekend um it's had its normal feed it's had its normal amount of hay Uh, you pull it out on monday morning because unfortunately you weren't able to get up to the yard because the kids were playing up and uh you pull your horse out and it's really stiff it's really stiff to move it's really reluctant to move um what could be going on well everyone's probably heard of a condition called monday morning disease or tying up um more technically, it's known as equine rhabdomyolysis. Um, what's essentially happened is your horse has probably managed to store a load of sugar within its muscle cells. Um, and that sugar has been metabolized. And as a result of it being metabolized without doing what we call normal aerobic respiration. So in other words, blood is coming in and out of the muscle, removing all the waste products. A lot of these waste products build up and can burn the muscle. Now, everyone's had stitch. in in their stomach and knows how painful that is essentially this is what's probably going on with your horse or potentially going on with your horse they've got the equivalent of stitch in quite a large muscle mass and uh, the gluteal muscles over the side of the hindquarters of horses are absolutely massive so you can imagine the degree of discomfort that that could potentially cause so these horses genuinely are normally reluctant to move or have a really stiff or immobile gait behind Um, They can show mild colic symptoms as well. So kind of uh, lip curling, pouring up the ground a little bit, looking around at their flanks. Um, Heavy breathing and sweating as well is quite often seen in these. And quite often if you run your hands over the back of their their gluteal so the back of their hindquarters or down their hamstrings, those muscles become really tight and really, really painful. in some of the really bad cases as well, um, of, of which we definitely, it's one question to always ask owners is, what colour has their urine been? Um, if it's kind of the colour of claret or port, that's definitely not normal. Um, so looking out for those kind of things can be indicative of this condition called equine rhabdomyolysis. Now, in essence, you've got muscle problems and you can normally break muscle problems down into two things. One is kind of like your acute onset which is normally due to sometimes inappropriate feeding or not enough exercise um, which has resulted in all of this additional byproducts building up in the muscle and you get in this stiff horse so those ones you've just got to look at your management um, you've just got to make sure when they're not actually being exercised they're not being fed it concentrates as much they should be on a high fiber diet and the horses should be moving around all the time so that's your one subset where you've got these acute kind of sudden onsets your second subset is a whole degree of kind of chronic problems so 
to get tying up repeatedly, so you're getting this time and time again, is again pretty unusual. And there are a whole subset of muscle diseases within horses that can result in them having almost this kind of tying up stroke Monday morning disease set of clinical signs all the time or periodically getting them every week or two. Those ones take a little bit more effort to kind of deal with. So if you've got your acute ones, calling your vet out, getting them some pain relief, putting them onto some fluids, checking that they're moving around okay is the key thing to do. And I would I would never advocate anyone in these acute ones to start walking their horse around. It it can cause more problems than than you're actually trying to solve. If your horse is willing to move, then walk it very gently. If your horse is not willing to move, do not force it at first. Call your vet, get them out. Let's do a thorough clinical exam first because the last thing you want to do is complicate things. But if you're getting these where you're getting recurrent little bouts of stiffness, uh, colic symptoms, sweating, tight muscles, speak to your vet because there are a couple of what we term polysaccharide storage myopathies, which are genetic conditions in which the, the metabolism of the muscle probably isn't quite what it should be. Um, there are simple tests that can be done to actually identify these. Some of them are blood tests, some of them are muscle biopsies. Um, to find out what is causing this recurrent sign of a horse essentially tying up. Um, what would I advocate someone to do? And that actually, if they were stood on a yard while they're waiting for a, a vet to come and then trying to find out whether this is an acute or chronic one, um, stick a rug on it. I think a lot of these horses, particularly if they are cold, get them warm. And that, that's going to basically keep their not only their internal body temperature actually regular, but also it keeps their muscles warm. A lot of these muscles, if they get cold, they get tight and they can get sore. So I'd tell you to people, stick a rug on them. Don't move them unless they actively want to. Call us out. We'll come out. We'll have a little look. We can give them some pain relief. We can give them some muscle relaxants if, if required. And then we can start to take some bloods to also see whether this, again, is an acute or a, or a chronic form. So from that point of view, again, keep your horse warm, make sure they've got free access to water, um, call your vet, we'll get them onto some pain relief, we'll potentially get them onto fluids if they need it, and then we can do all the bloods to tell you whether you've got a long-standing problem or whether this is just going to be a one-off. Thank you, Ricky. Next week, we'll be back with our favourite hunting vet, Helen Van Tool of VT Vets, who will talk about problems that can arise from being on your horse's back for a long time during a day's hunting. We've got a brilliant guest interviewee in five-time Olympian Michael Whitaker, And of course, we'll have all the week's news for you too. Thank you for joining us today. And please do rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word wherever you are in the world. Goodbye until next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.